Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, Representative Abigail Spanberger on CIA, Congress, and the art of listening. The first step in running for our office as a former intelligence officer is of telling people, okay, well, you know, just so you know, I'm running for Congress. Um, and you should also know that I actually was a former CIA officer and all the things I told you about my <laughs> employment were indeed not true. And so I come from a, a kind of a professional background at CIA where people are supposed to <laughs> question you, shoot holes in your argument, play devil's advocate, whatever you want to call it. I think there's tremendous value in that. I actually think that being able to say, like, I know nothing about your experience and the, the running of your business. Like, tell me, what do I need to know? That is something that has driven my legislative portfolio on the ag base. Abigail Spanberger, welcome to Chatter. Thank you for having me. Congratulations, I should say, on your re-election. Thank you so much. <laughs> that was a very closely watched race nationally, not just here locally in in Northern Virginia, but all of the networks and pundits were labeling that as a key district to watch and saying how incredibly close it was. Um, Turns out it wasn't that close. I mean, you won by a higher margin, almost 5%, um, won by a higher margin than your previous two elections. So what, what, what do you make of that? Well, I think that from a national perspective, one, you know, being on the East Coast, being in Virginia, um, our races close earlier. So I think people watch us. I've been a a quote unquote bellwether race each cycle. Uh, And what I make of the fact that the predictions were really off um, is that people weren't really paying attention to what was happening on the ground. I was not surprised uh, by our win. I was not surprised by the margin. Um, I knew we were going to win and I knew we were going to win relatively kind of solidly mm-hmm. um, because of what I was hearing on the ground, because of people's reactions to the campaign. And I think that for everyone who was kind of looking through this nationalized political lens as though everything is binary, you know, people are unhappy, therefore. Well, people can be you know, voters can be unhappy, constituents can feel, you know, ill at ease. And that doesn't mean that they um, aren't in a position to say, you know, it's complicated. The economy is complicated. Inflation's complicated. Yeah. The hardship over the past three years, it's complicated. Um, and I, I think that what we were hearing on the ground, what I was hearing on the ground is people wanted the acknowledgement that life is hard. Things have been challenging. Um, and they don't want people to just sort of falsely say it, it's that guy's fault. Therefore, <laughs> come over to my side. They want people who are acknowledging the hardship and and recognizing that some of these problems that didn't start in a day can't be solved in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it, it was interesting to watch even election night. And I won't name names, but I think they know who they are. <laughs> election night, uh, one of the kind of prominent reporters was saying, oh, it's not looking good for Spanberger. <laughs> and it was literally at a point in time when, I already knew I had won um, because we knew we were outpacing, frankly, our goals in my rural and smaller communities that report very quickly um, and knowing how much we had outpaced kind of the markers we needed to hit. We knew we were going to win, but you can't you can't really reliably declare victory when 
there's only 15,000 votes reporting and it appears that you're getting crushed, but, (laughs) but we knew we were going to win ultimately. Yeah. The analogy that's often used is, well, you can't, you can't call the final result of the game when you're still in the first quarter, but even Mm -hmm. that is flawed because you still score points as the game goes on. Whereas in an election, all of the votes are cast and it's just a matter of which precincts, which ballot boxes, the pace of counting. But it's not that somebody is ahead or behind and therefore they're catching up and they're putting in more effort. We, we have the wrong mental framework for it. And it leads to this ridiculous issue each election night and in a couple of cases for days or weeks afterwards, where it seems like it's some kind of ongoing competition when it's about professionals doing their job counting ballots. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, I can speak for Virginia. Most there's slight variations on how things go. But, um, you know, at the point in time when the polls closed at 7 p.m. on Election Day, uh, Virginia has 45 days of early voting. So we had 45 days of early voting plus Election Day. We knew down to the you know exact number how many ballots had been cast. Mm-hmm. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, be it in the early votes, the mail-in votes, or certainly a day of election, we know how many votes have been cast and you essentially know how many more votes you need to wait for. And so, you know, I think to the the topic you're bringing up in terms of the concern and the way that it's even reported election, election results, and as though it's an ongoing thing, it's just a waiting game. If you know that X number of votes have been cast, there's certain points where you know you could have crossed a threshold that your opponent can't overtake you even with the votes that are left. But you know, you always know how many more there are to count or to tally. Right. You are in a district that, that is different, however, in some ways than most house districts with 435 districts out there. I'm old enough that when I grew up, I, I thought it was just the naive belief uh, that I had, but it turns out political scientists back this up, that there were more what were called competitive districts, more swing districts, where you could have two candidates and they actually went out into the battleground of ideas, put before the voters their background, their experience, and most importantly, their ideas for leading. And then the voters made their choice based on that. Whereas now, and the data backs this up as much as I don't want to believe it, that there are a lot of districts that are determined by whether you have an R or a D after your name. And it really doesn't matter because they're plus 50 plus 60 districts. You are in a district that is highly competitive. And, and I'm wondering how that connects. I mean, is it, is it more your personality that led you to work so much with the problem solvers caucus? Or do you think for your district, it's essential that whoever is in your district is looking for bipartisan solutions? Well, I think it becomes a question of like, which comes first, the chicken or the egg, because I like, <laughs> and re- you can feel free to remind me uh, that I said this in the height of next re-election season, but I, I really like competitive seats. I like the fact that on any given day, I can walk into a room and about 50% of the people might be predisposition to agree with me just because I'm a Democrat, 50% of the room might be predisposition. And this, of course, changes county to county. There's a, I can easily be in a 70-30 room, uh, not in my favor. Um, but I like, the, I, I like the experience of listening to people. I like the experience, frankly, of you know walking into a room and it's not automatic that people are going to agree with me, that I have to do the work of... Uh, kind of explaining and and 
you know, explaining my policies, not changing what I support or what I think is valuable, but really using language that resonates with people or connecting um, with people or, you know, alternatively taking up issues that, you know, with my national security background and, you know, with with my experience at, you know, I do a lot of work related to conservation and forestry and related to meatpacking and processing and uh, cattle farming related policies. That has nothing to do with anything that I have ever done professionally or personally, but these are issues that my constituents have brought to me. And, you know, I think what the biggest difference is, is that in a, in a toss up district, in a swing district, I think people feel like they have potentially equal footing at the table, whether it's a kind of charmingly, uh, adversarial, like, oh, you, you know, don't think you're safe in this district. Like, you have to hear from me or just people recognizing that every single vote, every single voter, every single constituent um, that as they perceive it really does matter because the district could go either way. And I think that even with kind of the most focused representative, if you are a Democrat or living in a 70-30 Republican Democratic district, even if you have a great representative who would want to hear from you and want to explain themselves to you, after a while, you recognize that you're kind of outnumbered. And the same is true in that 70-30 Democrat-Republican district. Um, and, and so I think that um, that there can be times where even just on the ground, the conversations are different because people don't see it as a fait accompli. And they, I think, feel more forward with bringing opinions. And um, and, and certainly it's incumbent upon the, the candidate or the representative to say, I want to hear from you and, you know, to accept invitations to places where, you know, they're not going to agree with you as I have done. Um, but I, I think that Congress would be different if more people represented districts like I represent. Um, and, and certainly I think that even the historical data, uh, cause I have read through it, you know, when, if there's a hundred plus swing districts in Congress, it would be an entirely different place to what we are now with you know, about 40 or so. It certainly would be more like the way that we learned it in school, right? Yeah. If you had people going out there and, and talking to a diverse set of, of people and the, the voters selecting and everyone going to Congress who has that spirit of not necessarily compromise on everything, but listening to every point of view, at least that's the way I learned it. Schoolhouse Rock kind of taught me that that's, that's the way that, that this is supposed to work. But uh, I guess we, it's the system we have, not necessarily the, the the system we want. Well, and I think it's the system that we should have. I mean, we have a common background at CIA. And if you look back to kind of my whole experience at, I remember when I was going out and going to go meet with uh, an asset and I had a plan for what I was supposed to do. Like I would sit down with my chief of operations or my chief of station, say, this is my plan. And then they would kind of try to poke holes in my plan or did you think about this? Did you think about that? Right. And that was an exercise that was intended to keep you safe, make sure you were making the most of what were infrequent opportunities to uh, collect information on a particular topic um, and importantly, keep the person you're meeting with very, very safe. Mm -hmm. And so I come from a, a kind of a professional background where people are supposed to (laughs) you know, every single day question you, shoot holes in your argument, play devil's advocate, whatever you want to call it. And so I think there's tremendous value in that. And within the political frame, you know, in a, 
in a two-party system, that's the the devil's advocate is between the two parties. And and I've had the experience multiple times of going to some of my Republican counterparts, you know, and, and sometimes quite seriously, sometimes with a, a little tongue in cheek saying, you know, okay, this is my this is my fabulous idea for a piece of legislation from your conservative or your Republican or you know, your frame representing your state very different from mine. What do you like about what do you dislike about it? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been plenty of times where the feedback that I've gotten has been very valuable and not necessarily kind of monumentally changing what it is that I'm pursuing, yeah. but adjustments enough, either clarifying of language or certain parameters, that's enough to garner that person's support and mm-hmm. by extension, other Republican support. Um, but also, you know, it, ultimately there was a potentially a weakness or a lack of, you know, clear language or something that given my frame of reference, I didn't perceive that this person, I think, ultimately made the legislation stronger. And if the legislation has a better chance of moving in the Senate and getting to the president's desk, like that should be the whole ultimate goal. That is an interesting perspective because I think the reality of so much legislation now is so different that it's about, do you have the votes or not? And there isn't the compromise, right? There isn't the How idea. How do you get the votes? <laughs> what do we need to do to get the votes? It's yeah. this is what we're going in. There is no backup plan, right? With, with an operation that you worked on at CIA, every meeting you had with an asset, every everything had a backup, and then a backup to the backup. backup. And what do we do if this doesn't work? And what do we do if this doesn't work? Whereas it seems so often now, it's here is our position, damn it, and we we don't have a backup. Whether mm-hmm. it's because we have a 80-20 district back home and they're not going to accept us if we compromise or whether it is some kind of ideological ossification. But the idea of, you know, giving something to get the bulk of the legislation through, I don't want to say it's a lost art because you've done it, but it seems to be like it's it's certainly less highly pursued than it used to be. Well, there's a, there's a level of, um, uh, and I, I would call it an un, a kind of an unfortunate perception that, you know, if I think ABCD is the absolute best thing mm-hmm. and someone says, you know, I can agree with you on A, B and C yeah, on D, mm. there's a, well, you're giving in, you're selling short, you're, mm-hmm. um, you know, giving up, you're not, you know, insert sort of the ideologically sort of pure mentality. But the bottom line is if ABCD makes people's lives better, helps people, helps our country, keeps our country safe, strengthens the economy, creates opportunity for people, you know, keeps kids fed, what, whatever does right by people and for the country, then why wouldn't I do A, B and C and then say, look how great that was. Now, do y'all want to try D now? Right. Um, and, And I, I have been struck at times because, um, it, you know, to the CIA point, we were having meetings, you know, we have the, what's called the magic minute where you begin every single meeting with an asset where you talk about like, what happens if somebody interrupts our meeting? What's our game plan? What's our excuse for being here? What's the reason we're together? Mm-hmm. If this meeting, if we have to split up right now, like when are we meeting again? And if that doesn't work, when are we meeting again? And everything that you do is sort of predicated on the fact that you might need to move to plan B or plan C. And (laughs) before you talk about like the meat and potatoes of anything, it's like, well, let's talk through plan B, plan C, plan D, just in case plan A, you know, uh, 
kind of falls apart from the get-go. And it can still be success if you get to plan B. I mean, that is, you still get the bulk of the work done. It reminds me of that quote attributed to Ronald Reagan uh, that was, the person who agrees with you 80% of the time is a friend and an ally, not 20% a traitor. Um, to me, that speaks volumes about the the fact that people of of any side can compromise and still get to most of what you want by, like you said, reaching out and saying, help me think through this, help me see what I'm blind to so that we can get to the greatest good for the greatest number here. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, even on the, like on the political side and the campaigns, you know, a big attack is, you know, oh, if, if, if anyone ever listening turns in on a television in the Washington DC area, mm. you know, they would see, oh, Spanberger votes with Pelosi a hundred percent of the time. Well, what is totally inherently lost in, you know, whatever numbers they're throwing out is that if you look at Kevin McCarthy's number, right, the minority leader uh, of the outgoing house, or you look at mm -hmm. a whole array of different Republicans, I vote with them a whole heck of a lot of the time. That's right. Because we actually agree on a lot of things. Now, you know, un unfortunately, not some of the major things. And so it's legislation that we vote on every day and here and there that mm -hmm. kind of moves forward um, and without little fanfare because it's kind of the nuts and bolts of governing. Right. Um, but it's interesting to me that there's just this notion that everything's binary. If you agree with a Democrat, you disagree with a Republican. And, and there's a, a general assessment and acceptance that that's the case. Um, and into that kind of 80-20 uh, Ronald Reagan quote, there's plenty of people that I can work with. Like, you know, there's uh, a, a wonderful outgoing member of Congress, uh, Congressman McKinley from West Virginia, where, you know, he's is pretty, pretty conservative. We have very, very different political backgrounds um, and priorities across the board, mm -hmm. but we agree on protecting rural health systems and right. clinics. Um, and we actually just got a tremendous piece of legislation signed into law called the Summer Barrow Prevention, Treatment and Recovery Act that is, I believe, an incredibly important piece of legislation to help those struggling with addiction and substance use disorder. Um, now, are we ever going to do, <laughs> he's leaving Congress, but if you were saying, you know, there's probably a hundred different things that we would never work on together. Hmm. But when it comes to substance use disorder, mental health related issues and rural health yeah. support, you know, we, he was a constant partner. Um, and I think that's also something that gets lost in this. Uh, you know, I, I work with Chip Roy on reforms to Congress. Feel free to Google him. There is not a lot that he and I agree with each other on. <laughs> but you find the things that you can agree on, the coalitions for each bit of, it used to be you find coalitions for each bit of legislation and you find ways to, to pass them and not right. everybody has to vote as a block based on, on party. And that is how problems get solved, right? I would argue that, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's go back a bit, um, get away from the political structure to to young Abigail. Um, I remember we spoke last year and, and you told me that when you were five or six years old, you were keeping a journal or a diary and and you were writing it in code. Did I hear that right? That's right. That And I would have been, uh, that was when I was about seven or eight, I had a oh. diary, which I, I, I still have. It's not very complicated code, but um, uh, I kept say, my diary. You need to enlist NSA to get into your own thoughts as a kid? Um, I wish I could say yes. Uh, and I'd be very proud of my 
uh, cryptological what drove capacity. You to do that? I mean, I I don't remember what I was thinking at seven or eight, but do you recall? Was it was it a movie you saw? Some kind of Spy Kids inspiration? What what made you think I'm going to be secretive about this? Um, two things. One, a very nosy younger sister who was learning to read. Oh. Um, and and uh, uh, secondly, I had, um, I guess, I can't, I can't necessarily think of any particular um, spy. I mean, I had read Nancy Drew, which oh, you know, yeah. spy adjacent, I suppose. Yeah. Um, you know, Nancy Drew and um, the Hardy Boys and the sort mm -hmm. of figuring things out um, mm -hmm. kind of uh um, uh, like books that were of interest to me. And then I found different languages. I had um, a neighbor, their family was originally from Ecuador and the grandmother spoke Spanish. Oh. And I remember just, it was the kind of the first time that I had a friend where we would play together, we would play together. His grandmother would come out and I couldn't figure, you know, I didn't know what she was saying. And that was like a secret code to me. Mm -hmm. And so I got books from the library and, I decided that I was going to learn Spanish and I was really, I think quite aggravating as a child. Cause I would, you know, look at my mother in the kitchen and just say, ah, oh, agua, you know, cause I had all of a sudden I spoke Spanish cause I could say water and I could say food. Um, but I think that it was interesting cause I thought that, you know, language is code. And so I, even on the kind of old, whatever it would have been, you know, we have the 12 channels, but one of them used to play foreign movies. And so like when I would be babysitting or staying up late, I would watch, I remember I watched like Menon of the Spring, an old French movie, which is <laughs> retrospect, probably highly inappropriate, but it was in French. So I think I missed most of the uh, inappropriate content, but, um, but it was kind of a, a, a mix of liking to solve mysteries and wanting to answer questions and uh, being so interested in these like secret codes that, you know, in fact, are foreign languages that you know, millions of people speak in different ways. It's fascinating that you, you bring up the Nancy Drew, because so many people who end up going into intelligence will talk about, you know, they read Tom Clancy or they read, you know, they saw a James Bond movie or even read one of the books, which probably is uh, just as inappropriate for a preteen to, to be reading. But Nancy Drew or, or the Hardy Boys, for me, Encyclopedia Brown, these these books that I read as a kid that are about, you know, cracking mysteries. They're about finding the truth, that the fact that there is a truth and you're trying to find the truth. And in some cases, they're actually case officering each other in the book to try to figure out, you know, what the truth is. It kind of makes sense that that frame of mind gets someone interested in the business of intelligence, which is about exposing the truth that others don't want you to see fundamentally. Yeah. So you, you, you knew you wanted to work in intelligence at some point, maybe not when you were writing that journal to keep it away from your sister, but at some point, and you did apply for CIA, but I recall you also saying that your background investigation yes. was a long one. How, how long did it take and what did you attribute to the delay? So I was uh, getting my master's in Germany uh, on September 11th. And I was in, um, I was in a dual degree program between Purdue University and the German International School of Management and Administration. And I was on the German campus and that dual degree program. Now those two are not no longer partnered. Um, uh, the German school is partnered, I believe with the Dutch school. Um, 
but I was in my program and my whole idea was I'll move to Germany. I'll go to graduate school. I'll get a job in Germany. I'll perfect my German and then I'll move home and, you know, work at CIA. Um, and you know, this is late nineties, <laughs> late 90s, everyone's saying, Oh, you gotta learn German. Um, or, uh, you know, and, and so that was my plan. Then September 11th happened. And I had this moment of, well, if I want to five years from now be working at CIA, what am I waiting for? Um, and so, but you have to be us based or at least at the time, um, us based to apply online. Um, I assume it's still the same from a CI perspective. Um, and so I came back and did my last, like a summer portion of my graduate program from the Purdue campus in order to be able to do my application. So that was summer of 2001. Um, by September, I had all of my interviews. And by December, I got my conditional offer of employment. Hmm. And for those who aren't used to this, conditional offer of employment means you then still have to go through the, the polygraph, the background check, the health checks, all of the, all of the kind of uh, nuts and bolts of making sure that you can do the job. It's the most disturbing letter. It's obviously it's it's obviously a great letter to get, but it's one of the most <laughs> disturbing letters you can get because it says basically, congratulations, you know, you yeah. have a job. We want you to do this job and you'll earn this salary and welcome to the organization. But you need to do these three things first. And it's, yeah. you know, background and medical and all of this. And and that's what takes a while. Yeah. And so for me it was uh, my offer was December 2002, and then I got my start date. Uh, they called me in May of 2006. Oof. Yeah. That's one of the longest I've ever heard. Now, and I, and <laughs> Germany, I mean, CIA recruiters will tell you now, they said they want people with yeah. foreign experience. They want people with foreign languages who have traveled oh. and under, because that's where some of the useful job skills and experience come from. But they will also tell you if you have extensive travel, yeah. especially if you've spent your entire life going around to North Korea and Russia and China, that there may be some, you know, investigation of your background just to make sure, but you were in Germany and four years seems exceptionally long. I, I have made the joke and, and people would say, Oh no, no. But I, I do think there's a level of truth to it. This was in the post nine 11 hiring surge. Um, for those who don't know uh, in the role that I was hired into, there's a maximum age of 37 because it's mandatory retirement at 57. Occasionally there's a waiver here or there. Um, and so I was far younger than that at the time. And so I kind of joked, I had romance languages in German and I was young enough that I could easily be put on the back burner. Um, and so I think that that was it. I also had been, um, I substituted at an embassy school um, it, you in the U.S., but the um, I was a long-term sub um, at the Islamic Saudi Academy in mm -hmm. Northern Virginia, which teaches a lot of uh, diplomats' children. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, by virtue of that, I had some ties uh, that I think they just needed to ensure, um, you know, that I really was yeah. a substitute teacher, et cetera. And then I had spent all that time in Germany. I had lived um, in Hamburg uh, during the time. Um, un unfortunately that the 9-11 bombers have been there. So I, I don't know. I think it was really, I was young and I spoke <laughs> relatively boring languages and got moved to the bottom of the pile. So they may have been checking things out. I, I will also add another possible explanation, which is with literally hundreds of thousands of applications during that period, yeah. it, it may have been lost in the shuffle for a while. A hundred percent. It literally I, went to the 
to a stack that it wasn't supposed to be in and they discovered it a year later. I hate to say it, but in I'm any sure. large bureaucracy, that yeah. can happen, right? Yeah, I, I have joked that my uh, my t my that in between time I was sort of like a one sided pen pal because I would send them faxes. Here's an updated address, fax. Yeah. Here's updated employment, a fax. Mm. Um, so I was I think I was good at being a squeaky wheel, but I'm quite sure that I just got lost in a stack somewhere. But that's not all you did while you were waiting. <laughs> you you also actually you know took successful yeah. employment and you ended up at a, a place in the federal government and overall in the national security and law enforcement structure that very few people know about. That's right. Um, and it's the United States Postal Service, the Postal Inspection Inspections. Service. Describe that for people who aren't aware of it and what your role was. So the United States Postal Inspection Service is really one of the best federal law enforcement agencies out there that nobody really knows about them because it's an entire cadre of people that do incredibly good work, incredibly detailed investigations, um, and, you know, don't necessarily get any notoriety for it. Uh, you know, my favorite thing about having been a postal inspector is any event I go to where there's uh, former uh, Department of Justice uh, assistant U.S. attorneys, when they find out I was a postal they inspector, it. they say, oh, my gosh, we love the postal inspectors because... Right. Uh, you know, again, it's a cadre of people that kind of work for an agency with a semi-confusing name and, um, and nobody really knows what it is that they do. But basically, it's a federal law enforcement agency, the, the oldest in the country that has jurisdiction over any and a whole array of, of crimes that relate to uh, the U.S. mail service. And so I worked money laundering cases, particularly tremendous amounts of money laundering um, at, at least at that time occurring with postal money orders. So there's your nexus. Um, I work narcotics cases. So anything where anything related to drug trafficking that goes through the mail, um, whether it's the actual drugs themselves or you, you get a bill for the storage unit you rented where you're keeping your drugs, like anything can become a nexus. I worked a lot of joint cases with the FBI. Um, and, and frankly, for a younger professional, you know, and this is kind of the example of where everything really works out well in the end, the experience that I had. So essentially when I had been applying at CIA, I had applied around to a whole host of federal agencies um, and the inspection service moved pretty quickly. And and I, I had been very interested in the law enforcement side. I come from a law enforcement family. My father actually was a postal inspector, uh, which is why I have such a significant fondness for the agency. And so I had applied and they picked me up relatively quickly. Um, and I thought, you know, there is a world in which I would want to stay on the law enforcement side, not the intel side. Let me let me figure this out. I may absolutely fall in love with it. Um, and I did love it. And I would say in my early professional career, the experience of having been um, working the cases that I worked, I worked on the high intensity drug trafficking area task force. So um, I worked in Washington, D.C. with Metropolitan Police a ton. I worked in Maryland uh, predominantly with uh, Baltimore PD or Maryland State Police um, doing a lot of joint cases. The inspection service is often invited uh, to do a lot of joint cases. And so, you know, partnering with 20-year police officers who've been working narcotics cases in D.C. or in Baltimore, like the things that I learned, the things that I saw, yeah. um, the... Uh, arrests and search warrants that I was a part of um, are kind of most, some of the most powerful memories that I have. 
Um, it's where I have a tremendous love and appreciation for those who choose to serve their communities. It's where I think I grew a lot of my empathy and sadness for those who are fighting addiction and yeah. um, and are the kind of victims of uh, large-scale drug traffickers who prey on people who are facing challenges, whatever they may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a place where I was able to see um, kind of some of, at, at times, people's very darkest moments. And um, I think that's been very informative for me throughout my career. Um, and so I was grateful for the opportunity to serve in that way for a couple of years and uh, before ultimately CIA called and said, hey, remember us? <laughs> right. Yeah. And some of those some of those skills are also useful, especially empathy, right? Yeah. Actually thinking about what people's concerns are when when you're an operations officer. So yeah. talk a bit about that. Talk about the the skill set you need to be an intelligence officer, particularly uh, an operations officer or case officer, and you know, whether you think you had those skills or not, what they train you for so that you can be an effective officer. Yeah. And, and so, you know, a case officer, an operations officer is the person that's going out and meeting people and then recruiting them to commit espionage for individuals uh, who are going to be reporting on providing information either about their country, leadership structure, a you know, an important issue that that matters to the United States. And, um, you know, I think the movies makes it out to always be this, you know, tell us what you know, uh, but it is not that. Uh, if it you're is... screaming at your asset, you already have a problem. <laughs> if you're screaming at your asset, you've done something terribly wrong. Um, but it's about developing trust and developing an authentic trust, and which can be tricky because you're not always telling them the whole truth, right? But uh, finding threads of commonality, finding threads of what's important to that person. And, um, you know, I I think there's different methodologies about kind of what leads someone to be willing to commit espionage. And what I always found is that the people that I worked with who were providing me with information that um, you know, I was reporting back to Washington that was helping inform us on a whole host of different issues, be it counterterrorism or drug trafficking or you know, foreign countries, nuclear programs. Um, p- the motivation was generally one of kind of common purpose. Um, and, you know, broadly speaking, our two countries do not get along. Our two countries don't have good diplomatic relationships. And this person thinks that that and believes that they can do right kind of by the world or by the country that they love their own country by making sure that there isn't some catastrophic misunderstanding. And certainly, you know, that type of issue can occur between two nuclear powers that might misunderstand each other or would be nuclear power. Um, And that the United States ability to understand what's happening in more of a closed door regime, you know, and there's a few of those throughout the world that our ability to understand what's happening behind those closed doors can make sure that we don't, as a country, make the wrong move. We don't escalate something faster. And so it's it's interesting because I have had some of my kind of deepest relationships with individuals where it was kind of predicated all on the fact that the relationship's a secret, the fact that, you know, I'm the I'm the only one in their world that knows that they're meeting with me, mm-hmm. um, but that they believe in what it is that that they're doing. And 
understanding how difficult it is for people to kind of get through the idea that they might be betraying someone or something, helping them kind of come to terms with the value and the purpose of mm-hmm. what it means to provide information to the United States, um, you know, giving them the assurances. And, and uh, certainly as a former briefer, you know this, I mean, there is nothing more powerful than being able to go back to the person who's providing information about XYZ issue and saying, oh my goodness, like I got confirmation. The information you gave me was included in the presidential daily brief. Like literally the president of the United States has a better understanding of this issue because yeah. of you. Yeah, that's that. that's really important, especially for the assets who are recruited for ideology, people yeah. who are in a country that doesn't have the same freedoms the United States has and says, I want my country to be more like that. Yeah. Something like that, I think matters. Um, of course, not all assets are. Some are recruited more for ego or for money. And that can lead to a dynamic where, you know, your information is being, you know, given in the president's daily brief. Okay, give me more money, right? It's, but, yeah. it's a different relationship than when it's somebody who's doing it for the reasons you just described, which is kind of for the the greater good of their family, their country, the all humanity as a whole. Yeah. Um, and in that case, I would guess that it's immensely satisfying to have an asset who is both fulfilling her own goals or his own goals by doing that, but also helping U.S. national security in the process of doing it. That's right. And, you know, the, the challenge becomes if someone's too focused on is the U.S. paying me or, you know, uh, their own sense of self, then you get into other suitability issues, which is, okay, you know, okay, so are they going to start talking to somebody else if somebody else is paying them? Or is there inflated sense of self or, you know, the the way that they carry themselves in these meetings? Is that going to get them in trouble, right? If they're yeah. so proud of this, are they going to, yeah. you know, uh, accidentally tell somebody that would you know, get themselves in trouble? So it's, it's interesting because even as you're developing these important relationships, you have to constantly be on the lookout for these red flags that mm-hmm. sometimes might make it that their information might not be as valuable as it could be, or sometimes it's just the basic worry that they could get themselves in trouble. Sure. Well, I know better than to ask you the details of the, you know, the operation that went wrong or the worst case you ever handled. Um, But I'll ask it in a different way, which is what lessons did you learn from the thing that most went wrong during your, your operational career? Um, what was it that you took away and said, okay, this, there's something I did or something I was a part of that led to a situation that was suboptimal. Um, here's something that I'm going to do better in the future. Um, I think generally speaking, and, and frankly, this is even kind of the applicable to the best kind of proudest moment experiences is take a moment separate from the emotion of the event, either really negative or really positive and like ask what could have been better. Um, so just the very act of reflecting on it and yeah. not skipping over that step. Exactly. And I yeah. think that, you know, obviously, you know, when, when something goes wrong, you want to have an after action, you want to make sure like where, what, what were the things that we missed and where could we have done better and where could we have avoided this issue? Or if the issue was unavoidable, could it have been kind of a smaller level issue, if you will. But then even with 
things that go right, well, you know, could they have been better? Mm. And um, I, I think that that constant review, which <laughs> it's not always great when you're parenting, I will say that, like this mindset doesn't work all the time. <laughs> um, or when you, you know, just win an election and then you're like, okay, so what could we have done better? Um, not everybody wants to hear it all the time, but I do think that probably the thing that I have that I learned most from my time at the agency is that, um, you know, even whether it's something that went, went wrong or didn't go the way you wanted it or something that went well, you know, you know, all of the pieces that you put into it, but other people who might be working on your team or might be kind of a counterpart in a different role, Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily seeing the back and forth. And so there might be places where, Um, you know, you did something really well that they didn't actually even see, or there might be a place where in the end it turned out fine, but it's because they saved the day and you didn't actually even, you know, you didn't see that they made up the difference on some sort of shortcoming you had. Um, and so I, I just think that that's probably my biggest lesson learned is that just always doing that secondary assessment doesn't mean you can't on the, when things go well, you can't celebrate the successes, but when you're in, when you do that it makes it easier when things are actually in a, in a troubling, bad circumstance. So how did being a former intelligence officer help you in your first campaign for Congress? <laughs> well, I think the, the first thing is, so I had been undercover with the agency, went through the process of getting my employment declassified, which was a long and arduous process, not as long as my background check, but still long and arduous. Um, but I hadn't had the occasion to kind of go back and correct the record to, you know, all the people throughout my life. And so um, the first step in running for office as a former intelligence officer is kind of telling people, okay, well, you know, just so you know, I'm going to be running for Congress. Um, surprise, surprise. Um, and you should also know that um, I actually was a former CIA officer and all the things I told you about my <laughs> employment were indeed not true. So uh, this could be some awkward conversation. It was pretty you, uh, funny. Try to rush it. Pretty funny. Um, but I think that the sort of skill set or the things that I knew, I mean, one, you know, when I ultimately got to Congress, a strong national security background has been right. invaluable. But on the campaign trail, you know, I mean, the number one job of an intel officer is to listen and kind of be aware of your surroundings. And so to go to places and to just be aware of my surroundings, what people are saying, what people are doing, you know, that's a skill set that, you know, I think is an, of a natural interest, but certainly I spent years doing that professionally. I'm glad um, to hear that because we, we both know politicians and I certainly won't name names and I doubt you will. But we know politicians who are 99 or 100% about the speech, about the message, about what they are saying. And that is what's most important as opposed to spending, I don't know, maybe 50% of the time listening instead of just transmitting. And there's a clear difference in how those people come across. Yeah. Yeah. And I I would agree. And I think that, you know... um, one of the things that I'm I'm proud of is that the legislation, you know, the sort of brass tacks of the job that I've worked on, if, if you had, you know, when I was first running for Congress, of course, you know, the cost of healthcare, the cost of prescription drugs, there's certain things that you know, are universal concerns. And, and I would walk in any room and if not given the opportunity 
based on a schedule to talk to people first, there are certain kind of top lines that I would always discuss because they matter to everybody. Sometimes they, you know, the cost of prescription drugs might impact people in different ways, but it matters to everybody. Um, and um, what I what I loved along the campaign trail and, uh, you know, in the, the seventh district of Virginia, and we've been impacted pretty significantly by redistricting, but the, the common thread of the old seventh and the new seventh is the landmass wise, majority rural, majority agricultural population, majority suburban. So I can walk into, if I do five events in a day, I'm walking into five very different places. You know, it might be a room full of cattle farmers in one room. It might be a room full of people with a hellacious commute, you know, who work for the federal government in another room. It might be kind of a mix of all of the above in the next room. Um, and so even room to room, again, there's certain things that matter to all people kind of across the board, though, in different ways. Right. But in order to be most responsive to whichever room I'm in, it starts with, you know, tell me about who you are. Tell me about what's concerns are yours. And, you know, when I was first campaigning, if you had told me when I got to Congress, like I would be a champion for all things like cattle producers for small family farms, I would have said, oh, that's, that's curious. Um, yeah, I and mean, your career prepared you for the Foreign Affairs Committee that you've yeah. served on, but the Agriculture Committee, you, you had to be a listener. And there's some, I think, tremendous value in walking into a room um, full of, you know, we've got a lot of family foresters in our district. We've got a lot of cattle farms and row crop farmers. You know, the we run the gamut in terms of agriculture. But walking into the room and saying, literally, I can barely keep a basil plant alive. Um, I have no background in agriculture. I didn't grow up on a farm. Um, tell me what you want me to know. Um, and, you know, certainly I have learned a tremendous amount. I have done the kind of studying and the research. So from like a book perspective, now I can have, you know, really substantial and uh, in, important conversations. But at the end of the day, that person's experience is what drives my understanding. Um, and I think the fact that I'm not coming to them with, oh, yeah, you know, I grew up on a farm. This was my, you know, these were my parents' experiences. Yeah, yeah, I know every, I know all of your issues. I actually think that, you know, being able to say, like, I know nothing about your experience and the, the running of your business. Like, tell me, what do I need to know? Um, and again, you know, of course, I'm doing a tremendous amount of work and research on my own, but framing it, that is something that, you know, very generous, you know, farmers throughout our district have done with their time. And it's what's driven my legislative uh, portfolio on the ag base. Right. I have not had the circumstance. My, thankfully, my family um, hasn't been impacted um, by substance use disorder. Um, but I have met incredible parents who've lost children to overdose who don't ever want to see another parent go through that hardship. Mm -hmm. I have met people in long-term recovery or short-term recovery who have been willing to share with me their stories of what that struggle is like, how they first became addicted, how, you know, they started on their journey towards recovery, the, the hiccups and the, the, the rebounds that they've had along the way. And their perspectives, you know, I can do all the research and read all the data and work on the legislation, but putting it in the frame of someone else's experience and understanding kind of how it can happen to anyone um, is 
is something that when you're really listening to people, like people will give you the gift of sharing their experience. And if you're there listening, um, it's, it's pretty extraordinary what, uh, what, what legislative efforts that, mm-hmm. that we can get moved forward. Now, I'm just thinking out loud here, Abigail. So uh, forgive me if this is incoherent, but it seems to me that on a whole lot of issues, like overdose issues and on many issues of agricultural policy, that you obviously are elected by your constituents and you represent those constituents And there's no conflict in then how you seek to make policy in upholding your oath, because you you don't take an oath to your constituents. You take an oath to the Constitution, even though you're representing the constituents in doing so. Um, But occasionally, um, and, and you hope there aren't many of these, but occasionally there can appear to be a conflict there of what you assess is is best for national policy, perhaps even up to and including defending the constitution, uh, might not be what the majority of your constituents think. So we'll take the ultimate example. Let's take January 6th. Um, you weren't in this situation, but if you were in the situation where 80% of your constituents said, we support the storming of the Capitol and we support, you know, disrupting the constitutional process of the United States. But you said, no, I, I swore an oath to, to defend the constitution there's a potential conflict there, even if you didn't face one uh, for your district in particular. But talk through that a little bit. Talk through how it is that you conceptualize representing your constituents, but on some big issues, often national security issues, um, you're remembering that oath that you've actually promised and sworn to do something that is in the best interest of all Americans. So I'm going to answer this question in a couple of ways. First, I'm going to go back to ag policy and say, you know, I, I mentioned I have a heavily agricultural district in terms of land mass. Majority population is suburban. But when I'm in my suburban communities, I do talk about my work on the agriculture committee and the work that matters to the to the farmers who are a county or two over. Because I think from a perspective of like what is our great American experiment so many of us are disconnected from the experiences of others is is a problem. And I think that recognizing that, uh, you know, there's phenomenal agricultural work being done here in Virginia that is great for the environment, that's, you know, locally grown, you know, insert whatever the, the product is. Like, I think that's something that people should know. People may not immediately care about it, might not be top of mind, bringing it to kind of a, a new audience. That's the easy version, right? Um, Your example of January 6th, certainly there were times when I had to talk about how terrible that day was and I needed to kind of make it clear. But I'm going to point to, you know, I think everybody talks about Adam Kinzinger and and your interview with him was fantastic. And Liz Cheney, who is um, kind of an example of principal leadership. But I'm going to give another kind of lesser known name, Tom Rice from South Carolina, uh, super conservative, uh, Republican from South Carolina, represented Myrtle Beach. He's in Problem Solvers with me, which is how we really got to know each other. And we did a lot of work related to um, rural communities and funding for law enforcement, recruitment, retention, and training. Um, and Tom Rice voted for impeachment after January 6th, uh, which was as kind of a a bit of a surprise to anyone who was watching the news. And Tom Rice went about 
going back to his community that had overwhelmingly voted for Trump, certainly the first time and the second time, and just explained over and over and over how his vote was a defense of the Constitution, how it was the conservative vote, how it was aligned with his principles over and over and over. And he, when asked about it in his debate, because of course he got a primary from the right or from the kind of election denying wing of his party, um, during his debate, he had the most extraordinary, and this is, you know, he's a, a generally a quiet guy, certainly listens a lot more than he speaks, um, just absolutely nice and kind um, and thoughtful and had been successful in business before he came to Congress, like all these things. He gave this answer in his debate that I listened to over and over and over because it was unwavering in his principles. And it was focused in trying to speak the language of his constituents and say, let me tell you why what I did was wholly consistent with my principles, the person you elected and why it matters. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had, you know, I think a smaller portion of that um, with the first impeachment, I had been part of a group where after the um, uh, allegations came out that then President Trump had tried to withhold um, uh, vital military aid to Ukraine in return for political favors. Uh, there was a group of us that, from a national security perspective, framed out why this was potentially an impeachable offense and required an impeachment inquiry. Um, broadly credited or blamed, depending upon your perspective, for unleashing the first impeachment. Um, and I, the day that that came out, and certainly the day that we voted on impeachment. I thought that I had essentially lost my reelection. And, and my commitment was, if I believe that I'm doing the right thing, and without a shadow of doubt, then I have to explain it to people because um, I owe it to my constituents to explain to them. And if I want them to elect me as a leader, then I need to show leadership and explain this. And so one of the mm-hmm. best meetings that I've done during my time in Congress was the Tea Party of one of my counties right after that, invited me to come to their meeting. And I don't know if they (laughs) ever anticipated that I would come, um, but they were gracious enough or uh, perhaps looking for an argument enough to invite me. And I went, it was an incredibly important conversation. And I, I, I didn't necessarily convince anyone that I was right, but I did have, um, you know, even at that meeting, the gentleman who had invited me kept saying like, it is wonderful that she's here. We don't have to agree with her, but she believes in this. Let's hear why. Um, And I think that frankly, far too infrequently members of Congress, they say, well, this is where my base is. Mm -hmm. And they go to the base. And my argument, literal argument back to people when I've had this conversation is like, they've elected you to dig into these harder topics. Like they've elected you to find answers to problems. They've elected you to show leadership Like, where are your convictions? You need to explain to people why you believe something and don't Mm -hmm. just say, well, I would believe this, but, you know, my my base believes something completely different. And it becomes an issue, which is easier, I think, is ultimately. And, you know, and as I mentioned, Tom Rice, who, um, you know, I have deep abiding respect for, he lost his primary um, because he voted for the conservative principles of defending the Constitution. Um, and that's sadly for people who 
you know, the, the, their whole identity might be being in Congress. Um, right. For some, that that teaches them the wrong lesson. And I would much rather be a Tom Rice. <laughs> yeah, I, I suspect. I don't know, but I suspect he would say what what Adam has said in a different context. Um, not his exact words, but the idea of you know, would I do it all again, knowing about the death threats, knowing about the, you know, getting redistricted out of a seat or losing a primary? Would I, of course, I'd do it all again, because it was about a core principle of constitutional government. And yep. And I had that conversation as recently as a couple weeks ago with Tom. Yeah. And he has not a single regret. And he can hold his head high for the rest of his life. Well, unlike them, um, you still are in Congress (laughs) because of your reelection. And you know, you've been you've been outspoken on a few issues related to national security and foreign policy, ranging from uh, support to Ukraine and its uh, war against the invading Russians to the um, the involvement of Chinese firms in U.S. technology to refurbishing government computers for veterans and and seniors and students. Um, of all of those issues, which do you think are the ones that are least nationally appreciated? That that you really were pushing to make sure they got into the NDAA or into other legislation? Yeah, I think I'll, I think that certainly there's a little bit more on that question of leadership. I think that there's more room for explanation as to why support to Ukraine matters, that it, mm-hmm. of course, is about defending democracy and supporting um, our, our counterparts in the world. But I think beyond that, um, it's also about you know, what's in the best interests of the United States and, and certainly how do we um, uh, ensure that, that we're not draw, drawn into a much larger conflict at some point down the line. Um, and, and so making that argument, making sure people understand the, the NATO alliance, what our obligations would be if, you know, the Russians ever sort of crossed into a NATO country. I think that's an important piece. Um, but one of the, the things that I would mention, perhaps even uh, relates to, and this goes back to kind of a prior topic, um, the issue of fentanyl trafficking, the issue of drug trafficking, that is, you'll hear a lot of my colleagues talk about the fact that fentanyl is killing people across the country. And of course it is, um, uh, you'll hear people kind of want to use it to blame this person or blame that person, but they're, they're not actually coming up with any solutions or even recognition of the fact that, um, this is a problem. Um, and so, um, you know, this is a place where you know, certainly I want people to know about it, but I don't think it's as well known as it otherwise could be or should be that with the NDAA, I had a piece of legislation focused on, um, combating fentanyl. Um, and it would require DHS to kind of develop and find new technology that would help them, um, uh, kind of target and detect illicit fentanyl from a drug trafficking standpoint. Fentanyl is so potent and can be trafficked yeah. relatively easily. Um, and, you know, even when it relates to our interdiction efforts, requiring DHS to work in concert with other agencies, be it within the intelligence world or other law enforcement agencies, mm-hmm. um, this is kind of part and parcel of how you get at this problem. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who are saying fentanyl, 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 right? Which is like a deadly problem. Mm-hmm. But let's think about all of the other kind of downstream impacts. You've got transnational criminal organizations making a ton of money off of fentanyl trafficking that has destabilizing factors in other countries, right? That leads to kind of, um, 
issues of surges of immigration and migration. We, of course, have the domestic issue here where um, we're seeing record overdose levels in Virginia and elsewhere, uh, where not only are people overdosing more, but those overdoses can be so much more fatal because of the potency and the lethality of fentanyl. Um, And so this is an example, I think, where um, my national security framework, like I I view this issue as one that impacts us domestically for obvious reasons, but also has major national security implications, even in terms of regional stability. And rather than kind of pointing fingers and, uh, you know, just talking, you know, border security in a really reductive conversation, like, well, how are we actually going to get at this relatively unique threat among all the different types of uh, potential drugs being trafficked or attempting to be trafficked into the country. That's one of the tough ones where people seem to be so dug in on their positions, either, well, it's entirely a, a border control issue or it's entirely a domestic issue that getting people to understand, no, it can be both, right? (laughs) That it doesn't, and not every issue has to be an either or issue. Maybe there are multiple solutions and we can reinforce the overall effort by hitting those separate solutions. Yeah. I wonder how much of this goes to, I don't want to blame Hollywood for things that, that that's too dramatic, but we've, we've talked before with many of our guests about how on intelligence and national security issues, that fiction does not do a good job of helping the American people understand the issues out there. Uh, whether it's what an actual operations officer does, my guess is you did not spend most of your time running around in tight dresses and high heels, shooting people, having car chases and throwing bombs. Typically um, not, no. Not, not most <laughs> days, at least. But even on the bigger issues of how national security policy is made or how Congress functions, there's not a lot of good fiction out there that actually gives people drama and characters, but helps explain this big system that we have in the country to, to, to try to f- find problems towards societal issues. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you've seen anything good. I mean, people used to point to the West Wing, at least as being entertainment and still getting to some of the substantive issues. But is there any fiction, whether it's book, TV, movies, anything that you've seen that you think actually offers some useful insight for people on any aspect of U.S. government? My my gut reaction to that is no. <laughs> I can't yeah. think of nothing. I certainly I, like watching some of it, but I can't I, say yeah. that I I feel like I understand policymaking or oversight or legislation better as a result of anything I've seen recently. Well, and I think, you know, because part of it is if you've got to get something wrapped up by the end of the hour or the half hour or the you know two hour movie, then yeah. it puts you in a different position. Um, I will say there's an old show, um, Covert Affairs. Did you ever watch it? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, not realistic at all. No. Um, at all. But I used to work, I used to have an asset. So someone who was providing valuable information um, to the United States about his home country who mm. loved that show. Oh, And so I didn't necessarily make time to watch Covert Affairs. Mm. Um, but whenever I was going to go out on a meeting with him, I would go to whatever the the summary of shows, I don't know if it's Wikipedia or wherever that you find those things, um, and read the summary of yeah. each individual episode so that when I would go meet him, 
we could sit down and he would, you know, chit chat about, oh, did you see this one? And so I had like a major working knowledge of the show that I had maybe only ever seen like one episode of. <laughs> and it was so funny to me that here's a man, you know, coming from a country where he was really risking his life by meeting with me. If he had ever been found out, he would have, mm-hmm. um, you know, been certainly put in a very uh, notorious prison um, uh, for a very long time. And that would be a best case scenario. Um and our like discussions, yes, you know, he would tell me about his his kids, and yes, we would talk about a whole host of things. But the thing that sort of eased him into our meetings was to chit chat about this um, charmingly, at times very silly uh, CIA fiction. And so I found such kind of interesting amusement. And in, here's a man who's committing actual espionage who enjoys. Yeah. A very kind of charming, and I'm sure somebody would read a whole lot into that. But that's how we would like begin our uh, our meetings is by chatting about public affairs. I don't want to question your tradecraft, Abigail, <laughs> but is it possible it was all a misunderstanding and he thought you were Piper Carabo, <laughs> the actress? <laughs> it's possible. It's possible, uh, though highly unlikely. I think he thought she was way cooler than I was. Uh, um, which, alas, it's fine. I can I can deal with that. Yeah. Well. I, I have another question for you before we uh, we move to our chatterbox and, and wrap up. Um, and that is we've seen in recent years, uh, you, um, Alyssa Slotkin are another example. Um, we've met Matt Castelli ran in New York. A bunch of our former colleagues um, have worked at the agency for a few years, not for an entire career, but just a, a, a job and an important one, and then have left and have either attained or have sought elective office. And I'm wondering what advice you do have for uh, former colleagues, whether in Virginia or elsewhere, who are actually thinking about seeking elective office, um, whether it's you know local elections, school boards, whether it's running for Congress, because it is a, a different world than going into the office every day, even if it is intelligence work. And I'm wondering what you would tell somebody who came to you and said, look, I'm considering, I'm considering doing what you do. What do I need to know uh, from my background that, that I really should be aware of before making that jump? Okay. So the very simple thing is if, if they had been on the um, undercover side of the house, like practice saying CIA uh, so that you don't grimace or flinch. Sure. Uh, when I was first running for office, my husband um, kindly had a lovely conversation with me where he said, you have to just practice saying those letters in the mirror because you kind of contort your face and it's a little creepy and <laughs> you gotta get it doesn't right. make for compelling, like until you're comfortable saying those words out loud, those letters out loud. Um, uh, you know, and it's, it's interesting, right? Because it's whether you're on the analytical side or whether you're on the operation side, you pride yourself on being kind of very professionally, boring. You don't, when you go to parties and you see friends and whatever, you say, oh, attention. work's yeah. going well. Oh yeah. And I got a work trip, right. And your work trip someplace exotic and amazing. Oh yeah, it's good. I'm a little jet lag. Well, you know, and you don't seek attention. You know that what you're doing is, you know, some days incredibly exciting and incredibly rewarding. And, you know, some days it's uh, preparing for the exciting and the rewarding. Um, and so to be in a position where now you actually have to talk about yourself, you actually have to kind of try to get people to, to vote for you. Um, it's a, it's a total, total switch. And for me, 
I guess the advice that I would give is what motivated you to work in service to our country? And, you know, for me, it was, I want to answer questions. I want to keep people safe. I want to do something of value. I believe in our country um, in such a profound and deep way. And I think this is the place where I can help ensure that, you know, the lives of the people around me are unencumbered by threats they may never even know exist, right? And I like the idea that if mm-hmm. I take on some of those stresses or, you know, if I work to try and figure out a problem, like they don't even have to ever know it was a problem um, in a very sort of simplistic way. And I think that some of that drives me within politics is people are a bit more aware of, you know, the problems of their day-to-day, the challenges that they face, but how can I do something to try and... Uh, make things better for people and serve people. And, you know, in politics, it is a, you know, a two-party system. You do have to kind of pick a lane and define yourself a bit more. Um, but I think that, you know, Alyssa Sakin, one of my dearest friends in Congress and a, um, a former CIA officer, you know, the, the two of us are very clear that, you know, we didn't, you never knew people's affiliation, right? Or at at the agency, when someone said, well, did you think about this? Did you think about this? Did you think about this? Like they were helping you, Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's, you know, your analytic papers, when someone's like ripping it apart or, you know, on my side, when you write an Mm -hmm. Intel report and your reports officer would say like, what about this? And what about this? Fill in these holes. Like they were Mm -hmm. making you better. Um, And so I think that that's an important frame that, that people who lived in that intelligence space, I think can bring. Um, and so, you know, I, I would encourage people if you want to continue serving, it's certainly an interesting way to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I watched and, and Matt Castelli, I think he ran a really, really great campaign and one that was driven by principle. He was running against um, Elise Stefanik, who when I first arrived in Congress had been, you know, that perceived as, and in all of my engagement with her, and a very reasonable person who wanted to work in broad coalition. She from her frame, you know, others from theirs. Um, and that all flipped um, in the sort of cause of Donald Trump. And so watching Matt um, run a campaign kind of based on continuing to uphold an oath to the Constitution, but in the middle of it, getting to know people, you know, across that very large uh, district uh, was, was fun to watch. Unfortunately, um, he didn't make it to Congress. But I, I do think there's a lot of people within his district um, who kind of got engaged in politics because someone sort of invited them into the conversation. Right. Um, and that's certainly what happened in, uh, in, in my district. Um, and uh, certainly I know, uh, you know, happened in districts across the country, particularly when people's perception is, you know, you may not all vote for me, but, mm-hmm. um, but I serve all of you. And that's been, mm-hmm. uh, I think, an overriding theme. And my <laughs> You know, I've had pretty funny experiences along the way. Uh, this one woman, I walked into a, a shop. Um, I was doing a visit with another business and I walked into the shop and this woman comes at me and says, my mama hates you. And then oh. proceeds to tell me all the reasons why her mother hates me. Um, and then, you know, I inquired about her and her business and her mother. And by the end, she said, can we take a picture together? And so we took a picture together and maybe it was an act of rebellion against her mother who hates me or. Yeah. yeah you need to know that relationship <laughs> I, to know exactly I, what this means. Ideally it was a like, Oh wow, maybe you shouldn't hate this woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did have one constituent one time say, I hate everything you do. 
And he paused. He goes, well, except for that, you know, and uh, there had been some local press on support that I had given to one particular constituent that had gotten, for a variety of reasons, a fair amount of local press. And so I hate everything you do. Well, except for, you know, what you've been doing to help, you know, insert the person. something. And, uh, and so I, you know, you just got to laugh and say, well, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing something right. You may not like all of it, (laughs) but some of it, I'm trying. Let me reach into our chatterbox and find a question for you. Okay. All right. Name one dead political or national security related leader from any era who we could really use right now. I mean, I think, you know, Abraham Lincoln feels like a obvious like semi-redundant choice. Well, as someone from central uh, Illinois, I will never begrudge <laughs> anyone who picks Abraham Lincoln because he, he is a good choice. That's fair. All right. So I'm, I'm, Abraham Lincoln's the kind of obvious one, but I'm going to go with a slightly uh, different one. I would also say Ronald Reagan. And mm. as a, as a Democrat, um, I would say for the purposes of, I think some major elements within the Republican party, um, are very, very far from the kind of Reagan Republican that, that so many people were proud to be uh, in the 80s. And even, you know, we talked about immigration uh, at one point, I believe, earlier in this discussion. And, you know, the last time comprehensive immigration reform happened was under right. Ronald Reagan. Um, you know, millions of people got to pursue the American dream and, and become Americans because of him. Um, and and so I, I think... It would be interesting if he could do a couple closed door sessions um, with, you know, with with Republicans and then a couple closed door sessions with with Democrats to just kind of remind people of where we are in this here and now. Um, And for some people, kind of how distinct the here and now is from kind of an error that they uh, still claim to uh, particularly appreciate or for some not appreciate. Yeah, I understand that. Well, Abigail, thank you for your time. Thank you thank for you. The, uh, the explanations, the stories, and the insights. Um, I appreciate you coming on Chatter. Thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Chatter.